HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This week on a special bonus episode of Meet and 3, we find out how Brexit could be changing the way that Brits eat. If you're not getting your food from the European Union, where Britain gets 30% directly, well, where are you going to get it from? As I put very succinctly, bye-bye fresh peaches from Italy, hello tinned peaches from Florida. Bye-bye fresh oranges, hello tinned oranges. Bye-bye free-range beef, hello hormone-injected beef. Tune in to hear about the UK's struggle to stabilize its food system on Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, hey, hey. Welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Today is Tuesday, February 11th, 2020. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host here on the Heritage Radio Network. We've got a special show today. Um, there's a festival coming up in New York City, February 29th, Bowl of Zol. It's inspired by uh, Mezcal and Pozzoli. Our good buddies, uh, Danny Menya of La Loncheria and the Made in Mexico Cookbook, and uh, Mezcal importer Eric Torin of Fidencia Brands is here. Um, and, and Danny couldn't make it, unfortunately, but um, we've got some other guests here as well. Eric, just just say hello, and uh, just in 30 seconds, how did you start importing Mezcal? How you doing, Jimmy? Uh, 10 years, no, 13 years ago, I was traveling in Oaxaca, and uh, spent most of my time in the restaurant business and beverage and front of the house, and fell into it. Um, met some producers and my friend Amy and I decided to start a brand and we worked with Enrique, who's an amazing producer, and that sort of started us on the path. We launched Fidencio a decade ago and then since then have been importing other amazing brands of not only Mezcal, but Ricea and Sotal and Bacanora and hopefully more things to come. Great, and our a special guest from Roberta's Pizza. Hi, I'm Leslie Vineyard. Um, yeah, I work at Roberta's. Um, helped open Blanca seven years ago, which sounds crazy, but yeah. Yeah, it's great to have you on. I, I know that you're like a level two psalm now, aren't you? Yeah. Um, the uh, I will tell you the spirits portion of that test is nothing. So uh, I've got a lot to learn today. So 
Yeah. Great. It's a good place to start. And uh, one of our favorite food writers is here. Hey, Jimmy. How are you doing? How are uh, you, brother? I'm Chris Crowley. I uh, write about restaurants in New York, uh, well, restaurants and bars for Grub Street. So a little backstory on the show. So um, 2016... Danny Menya and I, we, we co-hosted an event in Manhattan called La Puestra de, del Sol. And it was a mezcal e barbacoa event. And Danny was really passionate about it. I know Danny imports. I'm speaking for Danny because he had a family family thing. He couldn't come in. Um, but he imports Peloton and uh, mezcal, mezcal de leyenda. leyenda. And the Sotol called Fabricero. And they're all excellent. Yeah, and, Dan, and Danny's been a restaurateur, Hecho and Dumbo, and now uh, La Loncheria in Bushwick. But it was very cool. He brought together a bunch of Mexican and Latin American chefs who at the time were cooking barbecue, but some of them we'll see again, like uh, Toloache, uh, Chef Julian Medina, and uh, Casa Enrique, uh, Chef Cosme, and Fanny Gerson mm-hmm. of New Yorkina. But the, the key part of that whole event was the mezcals. We had a giant 40-foot bar. With how many brands, Eric? Because I know you were there. Um, that's a good question. I think I was there with at least three brands. Um, we, we definitely offered a lot, of, a lot of flavors, a lot of experiences, covered a lot of different parts of Mexico. That was like, what, four, five years ago? Yeah, like 20, 2016, yeah. Yeah, so that was kind of at that beginning stage of we started to offer into the market with Danny's Brandley and uh, and and a few others of like going not just from Oaxaca and Mezcals but beyond Oaxaca and started really touching on um, the whole breadth of Mezcal throughout Mexico. Yeah, so it was yeah and it's great. Cool. And then the last summer place. I know Danny was trying to get a little, little more action with his brand um, and there are a couple other brands that, that you, you represent as well. Which ones do you represent, Eric? I started with Fidencio, which we still have and it's been a really beautiful project for me, the partnership um, it's Oaxaca and Mezcal. Um, we do a number of cheers, everybody. Varietals. Cheers. 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 Yeah, so last summer we were talking and I said, let's, let's, Danny really want to do a Pozzoli event. I'm trying to jump the gun. Mm-hmm. And it's Pozzoli. My first thought was, you know, I asked Kippy here at Roberta's last week, and I, I asked Lizzie. He said you're the only one who he lets call him that. <laughs> I don't know. I don't By know the way, we were talking about that today. Kippy. But I said, I said, you know, what's Pozzoli to you? And right away he looked at me and he said, red or green. So let's start with Pozzoli. So, Chris, you, you just did a preview. Danny's doing a pop-up uh, in the West Village at La New Yorkina. What do you know about Pozzoli? And, and you wrote an article about it. Uh, it was not something I grew up eating. <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was something that I, I, you know, um, started eating as I got, I went to college here and I probably halfway through, I started going out to restaurants more, but not, you know, out to the Queens, out to places. My dad grew up here and he was all about going to places with me. And I started going to more Mexican restaurants and I didn't eat a lot of Mexican food growing up. I had like old El Paso tacos, um, yeah. and taco salad. <laughs> yeah. Which I stand by taco salad, but, um, I, you know, the first time I can remember having pozole, I really remember really liking it, is I, if I'm not misremembering, this is a while ago, was at um, El Torredero up in the Bronx when it was the little bodega. And just like, uh, it's like a very, um, um, I guess, the, the appeal of it's very obvious. I mean, it's like pork and, and corn, and it's very comforting. And, and the sort of word that would probably be used too much is soulful, but it resonates. Um I know that there's more than red and green. <laughs> there's, it's one of those foods where it seems that there's 
um, sort of like a basic idea of what it is, but there's so many different varieties, and, and they might be nice. Danny said in, a, in the intro on the Bolazol site, it says, Pozole is one of Mexico's favorite dishes, a pork and hominy soup that inspires obsession and longing. The New York chefs uh, are hoping to get this off the back corner of the menu, uh, behind the tacos, ceviches, and guacamole, and, and bring it out uh, you know, to the front. Um, Leslie, what, you, you said you're making pozole for, for a staff meal here I, tomorrow. I, I'm not personally. <laughs> um, the chefs are making the pozole today for staff meal tomorrow. Apparently it's like better if it sits. I don't know. Um, red pozole, by the way. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know a ton about pozole, but the appeal to me has always been the hominy. I grew up eating hominy I'm from like backwards uh, Oklahoma. And, uh, yeah, when I first had pozole, I was just like, hominy, like, I, I forgot about this. Like, I ate this as a child, and you, like, don't see it often. Um, but, yeah, I'm a big fan. What is hominy? It's um, corn that has, um, it's like, has, I think it's like some kind of natural lye or something. I don't know. Chris, you might know more than me what hominy is. Um, but it's it's basically just corn that, like, they naturally remove the casing and it puffs up or something i don't know yeah it's a it's a it's a dried kernel of corn a, a starchy corn that um you after you dry it you reconstitute it with lye and it puffs up you there gotta you go. prep it the right way and you cut the the nubbin off so it kind of yeah. blossoms open that's really key um yeah and it's a beautiful platform you could use it kind of like as a blank slate. And in Mexico, what's really cool and what really kind of inspired this festival is when you go throughout Mexico, each region has their own kind of iconic style of pozole. And that, of course, relates to the ingredients of the place. And then you always see people playing with it. So it's also a platform for like creativity and stuff like that. But it's not just pork. There's a very traditional pole pozoles using um, all different types of protein. On the coast, you'll see some seafood. Sometimes um, some of them with different regions will be seafood and red or green and pork or chicken, beef, you know, and they're, of course, vegetable ones. Mm. So you see it kind of like a whole different array. Chris, any, what would you you have a question about pozole? Because to me it's still a mystery dish I don't know if I have a question so much as a comment about it which is, well I do have a question which is uh, well something, one of those things that seems to be like infinitely, infinitely adaptable because it's this sort of in between a super stew and you can kind of always just make it more like more one way or the other and you can add different things as you point out it's not just pork but like why is I, I'm curious about why something that that is so clearly different in different parts of Mexico has um, people think that it's so like they've limited or narrowed mm. well the conception hopefully of it. Uh, I think maybe the why to that is just um, uh, hasn't been uh, a part of the dialogue in like our restaurant scene so that hasn't been really talked about. And hopefully this uh, festival will give people the opportunity to see differences and inspire chefs and other people to do more with it, you know. But um, in Mexico, lots of different kind of pozoles. There's pozole restaurants. Um, and everybody's grandmother makes the best. 
So it's almost like it's like mole, where when you, when you really go to Oaxaca or wherever, there's so many different kinds. and, and Yeah, you know, mole is like less specific than we like to think of it also. This mole is really like a, a sauce that has a lot of pureeing growing, going on. Pozole is, is more of like an entree broth. It, it's almost like, for me, it's a Mexican version of udon or ramen, you know, and it, it's just like a whole, it's an, a bowl of nourishment. And sometimes there is a, you know, some, some, some of the green recipes specifically, they'll puree a pumpkin seed in there. It mm-hmm. gives it a thickening quality to it. And sometimes they're really thin, um, but you have like a really good like bone broth in there. Uh, so it kind of runs the gamut, you know. Um, but there could be vegetarian as well. Definitely, definitely. Not a lot of vegetarians in Mexico in my encounters, <laughs> but yes. Great. Now, uh, let's talk about mezcal. So um, there's a whole, luckily here, the, the show, the speakeasy with Southern Teague and Damon <laughs> Bolte. There's an entire cabinet of liquor here. We're usually talking about beer. You guys should lock your cabinet. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you, picked, you picked a couple of mezcals. So what mezcals yeah. did you pick from Southern Teague's collection? Right, right. So, of course, I forgot to bring uh, bottles. Um, but we have two really stellar mezcals here, uh, both from Del Maguey. What we have in the glass, we're drinking an Espadín from one of their villages. And um, San Jose Rio de Minas. Um, yeah, this is made from an agave. This is a Oaxacan mezcal. It's made from an agave uh, that's most likely cultivated. Um, and... Um, Develops a lot of sugars, really giving plant, really um, iconic for mezcal in general, and definitely the most widely used for making Oaxacan mezcal. And uh, kind of like in Chardonnay in the sense that, um, only in the sense that there are so many people making mezcal with it and so many different experiences you could have with it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like one set expert thing. Um, Leslie, you're kind of new to, to spirits and mezcal. Do you have a question about mezcal? Yeah, I mean, I guess um, what I know about mezcal is smoky. Um, yeah. Are there, like, not smoky mezcals? Yeah, yeah. Well, so the smoke comes in from cooking the agave. The agave has to be cooked um, because unlike any brandy, it's um, all of the fermentable sugars are locked up in heavier sugars like inulin or starches and so they need you got to break it down and it's heat is the method and you could use neutral heat like tequila mm-hmm. and tequila is a mezcal or you could use non-neutral uh heat like wood roasting like most mezcals um but within that and throughout mexico there's so many different examples of wood roasted mezcals that are not smoky mezcals um we have one in my portfolio from Derumbas. It's called San Luis Potosí, and um, it is not smoky. It's funky. It's unusual, mm-hmm. but it's definitely not smoky. And actually, the list that we have in the U.S. of things that we that are offered that are not really smoke forward, but smoke is more of just a part of the whole tapestry of flavor. It's growing a lot, you know. So it's a lot more representation. But definitely in the beginning, when mezcal was coming into the market. It was really making its statement with smoke as a lead mm-hmm. flavor. Chris, do you have a, a favorite uh, mezcal cocktail? Oh, man. 
You know, the one that I've been drinking lately is... Because um, mine are easy. <laughs> it's basic, it's it's a it, it's a drink that I was turned on to recently that someone... I, I had with someone um, where it's just basically like a spritz with mezcal and mm. you just add some on top. It's something like that. Mm. I Like, I'll have cocktails with mezcal in it and I'll kind of half remember what they are. I really like just straight mezcal by itself is often... Like, I have... I was in Mexico City... Um, a couple months ago, and I, I'll, when I've gone, I've bought, brought some back with me, and I'll just drink it by itself, to be honest. But I'm not against mezcal cocktails. Well, right now, we're sipping the, the Del Mague. I, I'm going to give a shout-out to Kippy and, and his crew. They, they've done an offshoot restaurant. Some of the guys from Roberta's that opened a bar down the street um, a few years ago, and I remember going in there and just having... Mezcal Negrones, which mm. which that was my go-to drink. But I feel like that that's like Mezcal as the intro drink. You know, the intro cocktail is like a Mezcal, mar- substituting Mezcal and Margarita for the smokiness, going back, to, or substituting Mezcal and a Negrone. But um, I'm more like Chris, where I, I actually would prefer to taste, and that's what our event's going to be. You're going to get to taste like 50, 50 Mezcal. there'll be some cocktails there. Sounds but dangerous. Yeah, for the most part. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's going to be more than 50 cocktails. Like, I mean, uh, 50 Mezcals. Um, but we, we, we build it as 50, but there's more for sure. Um, but what's, what's a killer mezcal cocktail? Well, just to kind of jump into what you're talking about, this highball refresher of just mezcal and soda. And one of the things that I've been exploring is cause I, I, I like cocktails a lot, but I get a little fatigued on lots of different like sugar and ingredients and stuff like that. So what I've been playing with is, um, different kind of spirit you know different mezcal and different uh, soda water and a couple of spoonfuls of a different amaro like Mm -hmm. you know a rhubarb amaro or uh you know all the different amazing things out there and it kind of lets the mezcal be the mezcal you could drink it in the summertime and cool yourself off and you have like interesting flavors um but in terms of like great cocktails with mezcal i think what really Cocktail-wise, my first favorite one was doing was a substitution was doing um, a Hemingway. Hemingway's a daiquiri with uh, grapefruit juice and maraschino, and that was something that I liked early on. How, how do you sell mezcal? I mean, I know that you import it, yeah. but a big part of what you do is slowly. <laughs> but you're, you're selling to bottle shops in, in New York, yeah, every, so liquor stores, but also restaurants. Yeah. How do you sell to one versus the other? Well, it's what I'm what. You know, at this point, the portfolio is big enough, and it has been for a while to sell to the needs uh, and the interests of of that person. So we have things that are really great um, and affordable and wonderful cocktail priced items, and um, things that are insanely allocated and really small and very nerdy. We have some um, ethnic um, community. uh, batches of small ricias that we have and um, it really depends on on the buyer but i think the way to, to talk about it is to taste it ideally show some pictures to help people like immerse into like wow it's really cooked in a pit it's really fermented mm-hmm. in a in a wooden vat or some of them are fermented in rocks and underground things and when people see that you know you know you're seeing like something from a, a place in a time you know, Chris. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say you know, when I was down in Mexico, I, I wish I could remember the, um, his name. It's escaping me at the moment, but my friend's friend who works in Mezcal down um, 
in, in Mexico. He, he's based out of Mexico City. He works with farmers in mm-hmm. different states. Um, the comparison's always made to, between mezcal and wine, but he, I, I think the comparison, even better comparison, is mezcal and natural wine. Um, because yeah. of just the, like, the, the, the method and the sort of pre-industrial the, If I was talking about mezcal and natural wine... Um, and my portfolio, the 100% of the portfolio is spontaneous fermentation. Probably you could extend that to a, about as big of a ratio of any category, mezcal. A majority are, are spontaneous fermentation. Um, there are definitely more and more that are doing things a little bit more controllable and things like that. But yeah, natural wine in that regard, you know, as a spirit in, in general, just wine or or eau de vie, you know, this is a spirit mm. that shows varietal, and we don't talk about that too much. We talk about mash bills, but it's not like you're like, oh, you know, breaking it down. So it's everything. It's pozole, it's yeah. um, mezcal. There's so many different, like the, the ingredients themselves are, are very different. I, I was looking at a great site um, talking about Del Magui. They have a site called um, Making Mezcal on Instagram, and it was posted in 2013 i was looking at it today and it's the whole step from the plant to the distilling and it's just it's like a 10 10 photo instagram that's like the most informative thing i've seen about mezcal um what are the plants you know like what is the plant that makes mezcal how long how long does that plant have to like grow and when is it is it picked when it's ripe you know what what are those the agricultural aspects Let's of pour this another mezcal yeah, before come on. we get into that. Um, and then we can quiz Leslie about <laughs> <yeah>. it. <laughs> the plant is agave. After it all is the it is not a cactus. Um, you could hear many many people say, "Oh, it's similar to this. It's similar to that." I find that to be distracting because it's not a lily and it's not an asparagus. It's an agave plant. Um, it's a succulent. When it has leaves, that when you harvest it, you cut the leaves off, and you're left with the heart of the plant. We call that a piña because it looks like a pineapple at that point. And then that's what is what's making the mezcal. So you have to go through the process then. So you have to it's loaded with mostly inulin and starch. Inulin is a complex sugar, yeast which makes alcohols super small so you can only eat simple sugars. So you got to cook it to break that down. And then you go into fermentation and crushing and distillation and Mexico is an amazing place. You have so many examples of radically different stills that are still being, that sort of evolved from technology mingling and sharing of information 300, 500 years ago. They're still being practiced and giving identity with the materials right now. And of course, there's the terroir influence. There's the water. You use water for fermentation. Because if, like if you stomp on a grape, you'll splat liquid out and that liquid in addition to sugar it gives a happy environment for the yeast Uh, but agave will have all that sugar after you cook it but no liquid so you the water that you add for the fermentation which is not dilution that water is like going to be a big impact on the flavor so you have river well water rain water whatever that may be Um, so there's so many different variables that go into the end of what this might taste like and if you said i get questions all the time oh does this taste like this because of this and always the answer is very simple it's yes and everything else you know so you kiss these aren't like science projects they're always just like 
this whole culmination of all these steps that the maker is going to make and you choose to do, which is why you get these amazing independent things. They're very different from each other. Leslie, you're just learning about mezcal. What, what do you want to know about mezcal? Um, are there different types of agave? Is like, or is yes? Perfect. Oh, I'm wow. pouring another oh, type right quite now. The segue. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was planned. Everyone. Chris is very patient. It's like, put the put the glass out. Wait for Eric to pour. It's a little different show today. Mezcal and not beer. But I am drinking. I'm drinking a Sierra Nevada Imperial IPA. The haze. Imperial IPA, it's very good. And um, but we're mostly talking about mezcal. Yeah, many, many different there's about two hundred different varieties of mes of agave found okay. in Mexico and about a quarter of them are known for making mezcal. And uh, the reasons why not all of them are used because primarily most of the ones that are not used don't develop enough sugars for it to be worth your while and your resources and your time and your effort. Uh, because you might have like a massive agave that took 15 years to mature. And if it's a species that doesn't develop a lot of sugar, you might have like tiny yields. And it's, so they know what they don't like to use and what they don't like to use. Um, are, are there any like rules for mezcal? Like to be called mezcal, it has to be this yeah. type of agave or aged for this long or like with yeah. wine? Yeah, um, well, for 500 years or so, everything that was distilled from an agave plant in Mexico was it was and is a mezcal. Um, tequila is um, uh, the first mezcal to have its own appellation of origin. Uh, that was done in an, in a way that's sort of normal for the world because that was named after a town in this heart of this style of mezcal with these people. Um, and then the denomination of origin of mezcal was established, but they didn't name it after a place, uh, which makes it challenging. They named it after the, the final product. So that is now up to nine states. So if you are making mezcal outside of that state, you can't, that's one for that, just being outside of the geography of it is one reason why you sort of have an identity crisis. So it's problematic, unfortunately. Um, but the answer is like there's historically everything is mezcal mm -hmm. and now there's a DO with all the types of rules that you'll have in a DO. Um, in terms of style of production, um, there are different rules and different layers within that. One general thing is that there's nobody mandating that you have to roast with wood so you could be an unsmoked mezcal and be fully certified. Uh, and you so could the, be a the smoked tequila. The too. smoke flavor is from the process. The cooking. Yeah, imagine taking the same pork shoulder and, you know, seasoning two of them the same way, putting one in a, in, in a brazier and, and, and put it in the oven and, and braise it and put one of them in a, a pit. I, I was oven. amazed at, at making mezcal. It's like yeah. I didn't know that the, the piñas get chopped up and thrown in a pit just like yeah. barbecue and covered yeah. with, with dirt. I had no idea. And just like And then barbecue. I was like, well, that's why it's smoky, right, Leslie? Yeah. It's like smoking yeah. barbecue. Just like barbecue, the wood that you use is regional and it matters, you know. So like we don't, apple wood barbecue is great, cherry wood, peach wood, hickory. Um, let's let's talk about pairing mezcal and uh, pozole. <laughs> um, Chrissy, I know you did some research. You've you've tasted some some pozoles. Um, any anything to say about pairing? What would you drink when you when you eat pozole? You're drinking beer. Well, yeah. 
<laughs> I would drink yes. beer, but I could also understand why this would be really good because I mean the thing about pozole is not a light food. Necessary. It's like it's a hangover have, food. Yeah, but it's not like the it's you know you're not eating a salad, so it's sort of like eating pizza and beer. It, it's nice sometimes, but it can be a little heavy. Wine's kind of better with it. Mezcal's a little bit lighter on your stomach, um, and also the smokiness of it. I feel like does. I mean, if it is smoky, but like the flavors of it, the sort of sharpness of it and the burn can cut into that in a way that beer doesn't really for me. Yeah. And your job is pretty cool. So Grub Street, what you review, what, new restaurants? You, you, do, you feature some food events that are coming up. Tell yeah. us about your job because your job is pretty cool. I mean, we I, know Eric's I, importer. You know, Leslie works at this restaurant, but... I do a few main things. One of them is a weekly column called the Grub Street Diet, where it's like a different I love person. That and, um, we did it with Lulu Lulu uh, Wong recently, the director of the Farewell. Um, different people. She was in LA most of the time. It's in New York. I the the thing that I mentioned the um, Pozole event, uh, Pozole Mezcal Festival, and is a monthly event, uh, monthly column we do. Um, it's just a roundup of sometimes new restaurants, sometimes just new dishes, sometimes events, things that are going on. Food agenda? Yeah, we call it a food agenda. I mean, you have to find some sort of name for it. <laughs> That's our name. Um, try to approach everything with a little bit of tongue-in-cheek. And then, uh, you know, try to do a variety of reporting on restaurants in New York, whether that means, like, what's new and notable in restaurants um, or stories like I wrote something last year about insurance and bartenders or the lack of insurance uh, in the bartending industry and the particular struggles that people in that world have versus any other industry because of the strain that that job takes on people. Um, but a lot of it's more like, you know, what's happening in the food world. It's very interesting. Um, for a while, it seemed that like publications like yours focused on restaurant openings and news but then it seemed like recently everyone was talking about restaurant closings. Um, I think you're doing it the right way. Yeah, I guess a lot of restaurants were closing. <laughs> no, I'm, sorry, I'm just kidding. But, I mean, yeah, it's sort of like you have to... Um, it's what we were talking about on the, uh, in Roberta's, which is that there's so much going on. And if you can give people sort of like a sense of, of where they should be spending their... Everybody has a limited amount of time. Um, we all work a lot. And you only have so much time you can be out in the world. And if you can sort of like pick through what's going on for people and New York, everybody is trying to, uh, everybody has like a hustle or a game and they're trying to get noticed. L Leslie, so you're, you know, food restaurant person. Sure. What, what sites do you read to keep up with, you know, restaurant openings, places you might want to go? Um, I mean, you know, Eater and Grub Street. Like I don't, I don't. Uh, I mean, it's really word of mouth for me. I, you know, I, I work in like in the industry, so we're constantly talking about where we ate last night and what was good, what wasn't. And da, da, da. I mean, it's it's like a constant conversation. Um, you know, when I'm out to eat, I'm like, try, okay, remember this. They're gonna ask you questions, especially like if it's like a big meal. You know, the chefs are gonna want to know, and you can't be like, well, it was blacked out. Um, <laughs> don't remember that course. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's Instagram. I think it's, um, I think it's Grub Street. I think it's Eater, you yeah. know. 
And earlier someone was talking about... Um, it's not the New York Times anymore, the, though. Jumping at Pizzoli, the, the chef at Achilles Heel makes a Pizzoli sometimes. Did you bring that up? Uh, Kipper did. Kipper did. I call him Kipper. <laughs> so there's so we'll talk about places to get Pizzoli. So uh, Danny, man, you opened up a pop up, mm-hmm. La Pizzoli American at London Yurkin in the West Village. Yep. Um, sometimes at Achilles Heel they make Pizzoli in Greenpoint, and you you've picked a couple of chefs oh, for yeah. this event. We have. Uh, What's the Indigo Hotel restaurant that's opening up? The they're Kit- opening up a. I don't know if we're allowed Kitch. to say. Uh, is it, are they public? I think you can that? say that it's. I tried to Google it. They, it's they're not planning online, a pasole so for it. their <laughs> restaurant. Chef Chai. Chef Chai is, is planning a pasole that is a matzo ball pasole. That's that what you're supposed feature. to say. Oh, yeah. yeah, the matzo ball yeah. pasole. So we're going to swing back to that, that. like this, yeah. this, this mix of. And I saw a pasole that was. It, it, now you're talking about pozzoles and ramens. We're, we're going back to ramens. I saw a barbecue place in Vermont that had a really awesome, like short rib ramen. I was like, God, that could be well. well at La, La Pasoleria, they have a, a at Danny at the pop up. Yeah. Um, they have um, a vegetarian pozole that is a riff on something in Veracruz that was like this hybrid thing where um, some a bunch of locals are taking the soup that's. They're dumping in a brick of uh, top ramen, um, hmm. and of course they're using like really great sourced ramen noodles, and they have sort of played on. It, that. it almost seems like to make pizzoli work. It's like it's almost like it's kind of becoming ramen. It's Mexican. <laughs> well, I've got a genius but I, idea. But they can hang. They can hang for sure. I want to hear Leslie. Yeah, let's hear. I it. think we do a menudo. Uh, pozole like collab like combo like I mean how good would that be I think it exists I think does it I mean it has to right they're so similar I'm a little um, unless someone's really insisting really yeah I love it Chris in your travels what's a pozole that that jumped out at you that you're like I have to go back to this that I crave yeah it's I mean it's the one it's still the one that was at El Tordero which I I don't um, I haven't had that in a long time and I don't, I don't think it's available anymore. You know, I was thinking about the fact that I went to Mexico City and I didn't eat any when I wrote this just because it was like I was there with a friend and for his birthday and it, and it was sort of, um, I was occupied. But it was really th- that one where it had the like, there's something about the corn kernels where they're like big and sort of chewy and you have mm-hmm. to kind of like dig into them a little bit. With your Were teeth. they like toothy chewy or are yeah, they crackly like yeah. like corn nuts? Toothy chewy. Because I've seen them like the crunchy style too. Not I've not oh, seen that here. Yeah. I've seen I've it in Mexico. Yeah. We're, we're gonna take a short break. We're back in a minute. We're gonna talk more about hominy and and corn on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. 
Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Big shout out to Roberta's Pizza, our home, our studio, our love. We love you, Roberta's Pizza. Um, and our special guest today, Leslie Vineyard, who's, who worked at Blanca for so long and at Roberta's Pizza. The first time you were on the show, Leslie, remember? <laughs> it was like two years ago. I had our top, like... Hop family grower John Siegel from Siegel Hop Ranch, whose father created like the Cascade Hop, and Jeff O'Neill from Industrial Arts. And you happened to be sitting at the bar, and we were like, You're smart, you know about food and wine, you're coming on, and you yeah. were great. And you actually had some really great questions, <laughs> you had great questions about so now you're back. I mean, you know, we were like, Oh, it's Mezcal, nobody knows about it. Let's invite Leslie. Yeah, I'm here, I'm here to learn, I'm here to play the you know question lady <laughs> yeah so i bet you have another question so pozzoli so tell us about so why or who at roberta's is making a staff meal why is pozzoli the dish this uh, week so our chefs um they take staff meal really seriously um and i've worked at restaurants where they didn't and it's you know kind of a slap in the face i mean we have like some of our like higher up chefs are in charge of staff meal. It's not a dishwasher. It's not, you know. Uh, so we have some pretty elaborate staff meals, and they, like, sit down and, like, menu plan, and there's a whole theme behind them all. And um, tomorrow is pozole, just randomly. Uh, I don't think they knew we were doing this show or anything. Um, Actually, but, I think they did. So, <laughs> yeah, so I got to try, like, the, you know, this the version that came out today. I think it'll be more like the flavors will be deeper tomorrow. Um, but yeah, I mean, so is it more than red or green? Like what? Um, this one seems to be like, like a pretty, um, hearty, like thicker sauce, uh, red kind of straightforward, but delicious. I'm like really curious to see like what kind of sides they rock out. I mean, all the different departments, the bakery, the, Pizza Kitchen, Blanca, um, Takeout, everyone has their their role in the staff meal. Everyone's, like, responsible for putting up a dish to go along with the theme that day. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a... I'm what time lucky. is staff meal tomorrow? Yeah, yeah right? Yeah. I know. I look <laughs> Eric will come with some yeah, mezcal. I, I was going to say, for, like, for the amount of time, for years and years I spent in the restaurant business... That's really beautiful. I think that's something yeah. to really be proud of. And I mean, admire. I live across the street. Sometimes I walk. I walk over here to <laughs> eat stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I also say, will you maybe um, snap a photo and yeah, tag sure. a bowl is all for Instagram? Yeah, We'd love to see your uh, your your and Eric, your you so you, 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 you sure. got some, your backstory. So you opened a restaurant that I love. Oh, I, twenty years Way in back. restaurants. Um, when I I lived in Aspen for five years, and when I moved back here. I started to work 
I was bartending at uh, the Red Cat um, Jimmy just Bradley, after it opened. Yeah. yeah, Jimmy Bradley, Danny Abrams. And, uh, and that's where I met Amy, who later on, she moved down to Oaxaca. And I was between projects years later and went down to visit her. And her, she's my business partner in Fidencio Spirits. So I met her bartending at the Red Cat. And then in that time, I've worked for... Uh, I opened. I went back to Jimmy and Brad, uh, Danny and opened up uh, the first Mermaid Inn on East 2nd Village, Avenue. Yeah. That was a really cool project. That had a between the Red Cat for me. It was the Red Cat and the and the Mermaid that had that family kind of mm-hmm. um, experience. But you, so you, we know that you have restaurant chops and and you know guys. I know at Skernick Wines, Dan Lerner, a good mm-hmm, buddy. Mm-hmm, I mentioned mm-hmm. your name. You know, pe- people know you. Yeah. You know the industry and you get it. So what about mezcal? Importing mezcal, you also import some beer. What's that process? I mean, the process for me was um, take small steps and try not to trip um, because I didn't know what I was doing. Other than what really happened was I had a really good sense of my taste and flavor and I felt good about things like that and what people were willing to try and explore. So that all felt right, but I didn't really know about making a brand or... Uh, bringing in alcoholic beverage or working distribution. So uh, I learned a lot over the, the process of doing it. Amazing. Chris, uh, your thoughts must be percolating now. Well, something I've been thinking about since we started talking was that what's what's interesting to me about mezcal is, I mean, I think it's, when it's good, it's delicious, but it's also that it's such a, um, sorry, I'm getting a little closer. Um, it, it's, it's particularly interesting right now because of the fact that it's becoming more popular and therefore there's more pressure being put on the farmers and on agave production. And it's also this pre-industrial method that's unique and different from how you make alcohol in Europe. And that's precious that it's survived through colonialism and through centuries of assimilation. Evolved with. And now, yeah, and evolved, sorry, evolved with, um, but also now we're dealing with climate change Mm -hmm. and it's this sort of like, nexus of all of these mm. issues and how do you how do you navigate that how do you as a consumer or as a, a as a, yeah i guess any any one of us so, me too because i'm i yeah, don't think it's, any it's so i would different. say that uh you touched on every almost every bullet and every bullet has its own um yeah huge way of looking at it so when you talk about um agave availability and and um the decimation of populations of agave in the wild that the most amount of mezcal is made in oaxaca and it also has the greatest population of Mm. a different variety of species of agave um like 25 different agave there's 250 in the world about 200 in mexico oaxaca is the most on the planet of diversity of species um, but yeah, people, so, so the, the amount of consumption that happens there is really different than other parts of Mexico. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm in the business of Oaxacan mezcal, but other things too. So if you're really interested and don't really want to take the time to know deeply about that particular brand and that particular producer, um, then, you know, maybe just look for some mezcals that are not made in Oaxaca and find something there. Just by virtue of that, you might find you can spread the pressure a little bit. Yeah. But really, I think the best way if you if you're, is connect to um, 
if you're a consumer, your bartender, your restaurant person, and 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 and, and your bottle, see your hand selling bottle shop, and dialogue with them and find out what they have to say. If you're a buyer, you know, work with a good distributor. Work with a distributor that understands, you know, the brands that they carry and maybe even comes down and, and visits and sees the process and can share some things like that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's sort of, and I guess in the sense that natural wine in some degree or another is, there's a lot going on there, but in some way it might be a way of trying to reclaim certain things from large corporate bodies that have taken over this industry. It's sort of like, how do you, I guess the question with Mezcal is like, how do you, uh, how, is it, how is it made equitable for the people who are producing and the farmers? And- Leslie? Thanks. Oh, I mean, uh, I like that take taking back and authenticity and natural wine. Yeah, I mean, I think natural wine is um, like the whole movement has just been uh, like just getting back to our roots, like getting back to like how wine was originally made, um, like with skin contact and um, you know, I mean, just various different like practices. Um, but yeah, but did Mezcal get there? Did it get like super corporate ever, or like is it just getting there now? It's a different trajectory, you know. Yeah. The, you, and you guys talk about the natural wine movement. Um, it is a movement to go back and you know reevaluate and reset maybe for some. Um, the past twenty years of Mezcal in the market, it's really and the past really the past ten years. And then, of course, the past five years, those are um, we're coming from zero commercialization, Mm -hmm. except a couple of like highly industrial brands that they're still obvious that they're industrial and nobody really Mm -hmm. confuses them. Those are the ones with the worms in the bottle still. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and they're that sat on the bar for 10 years at the one bar you worked at. The beauty, I guess the I think for the for everybody's sake, what's been really cool is that in Mezcal is definitely big, bold flavors and polarizing. So for people to come around and find their way in it, it takes some passionate people. And passionate people typically talk about things that they're really proud of. And then that's kind of how the category really grew. Now, you know, we have volume. We have bigger... um, You don't really hear too many cocktail menus of note that... um, in non-Mexican places that don't have a mezcal cocktail. Yeah. So it's become like like we did our job. We mission accomplished in terms of oh, bro, category awareness. So right? mezcal has a place at the table now that yeah. it didn't. And then 30 years ago, there was one mezcal bottle on every bar that had a worm in it that didn't move. Mm-hmm. But I think what Chris said is very interesting and, and, and what Leslie said, this like craft to a product, like whether it was beer or cider or, or distilling or, or mezcal. I mean, the things that I like about it all is, is seeing it from the agriculture, you know, totally. seeing that image on making mezcal of, you know, cutting up the ripe pinas and putting them in a pit and smoking them. That, that, that struck a chord with me. But he's right. Like, how do you, like, the, the, the next level up, um, I don't know, how do we know which, what's an authentic artisanal mezcal? Um, I mean, I could go into all of mine in great detail and go into many others in great detail. We don't have Pick time one. for that. Pick one and why it's, why it's authentic and <laughs> okay. artisanal. So I have a mezcal called Fidencio Classico. It's my biggest seller. It's definitely the cornerstone. And what it is and where why it sits where it is, it's a traditionally made mezcal from Oaxaca. It's made from Espadina Gave that's farm-raised. So therefore, it's not 
engaging and wild, and there are definitely good and bad ways to do wild agave. Um, we don't buy agave from other farmers, so it's all state-grown, so that helps us control the pricing and, of course, quality. And we don't blend in liquid. Unfortunately, there's no way for you to know for a tequila or a mezcal or many, many other things out there that you a, a, a producer can buy liquid from made by another producer and add volume to their own product and then just put it in under their name. So like there's orange trust. juice or many other products. Many, many, many other things out there. So there's trust. That's why I say like the best thing you could do is talk to your bartender, find a bartender that you trust, find a distributor that you trust, find a brand, find a find, talk to the people. Come to Bolazol and come to our Pozole event meet a lot of actual importers distillers makers and talk to them or listen to them and taste so let Leslie you're, you're at the event there's this 50 or more different mezcals what, what's the what's the first question you'd want to ask any of those producers just to kind of cut through the bullshit because um, you're a tough you're an industry person you know you might you might be considering this mezcal for for a dinner or for your, you know, yeah, bottle I mean, list or something. I guess um, I just want to talk like flavor profiles and you know pairings. Like I mean, that's like what I'm mostly concerned with um, in the restaurant. But um, but yeah, like is this a family operation? Is this uh, yeah? You know, I mean, I'm really into natural wine and you know and spirits as well. Um, I, I just I would want to know like, like who who's making this? Yeah, who's the maker? Check the bottle. Let, most mezcal bottles will put the name of the uh, mezcalero, the maker, on it, um, and that's a really good place to start. Uh, for by the way, for the event, uh, you know we 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 have tequila, we have mezcal, we have some cane spirits, all from Mexico. People presenting there, and. From my deep insight to a lot of these people that I know and have visited, and uh, all of them are uh, brands that I'm really proud of, you know, to, to show that. Uh, Sotol. I have a friend in Austin, Texas, who's like, well, there's got to be a cool Sotol. What Sotol? Is it an agave spirit? Traditional Mexican it? spirit can be made steamed like a little bit more modern tequilas, can be made pit roasted like a mezcal. It's from a different type of succulent plant. Uh, it's more North Morteno, North Borderlands, uh, and uh, it is not a mezcal in that historic sense, but it is a traditional Mexican spirit and 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 lives in the same dialogue and conversation. It is most iconic for the northern states: Chihuahua, Coahuila, Durango, and you see so tall uh, in the United States, indigenous to the United States. We call it Desert Spoon. So you see it in California and Texas and all that. Great. What's yeah. the second mezcal that you poured for us? Del Gay. Actually, I think we all want more. Chris wants more for sure. <laughs> Please. Del Gay Papalomet. Uh, Papalomet is a... Um, thanks to Southern Teague of the Speakeasy yeah, for his you. massive spirits collection here in the Heritage Area <laughs> Network That's studio. That's just a little this bit smaller. A now, Leslie, all, your, all the Roberta staff knows that there's like 200 bottles of booze in this room. Yeah, well, I saw you put up some signs that there are cameras, so that's probably like a good... <laughs> that was probably a smart idea because, uh, yeah. And then, Chris, you kind of started this whole thing off. Uh, Danny Manny got inspired, said, if we're going to do a Mezcal event, I want to do it with Pozole. 
And then he did a Pozzoli pop-up at London Yurikina in the West Village. You wrote about it, and you wrote about our event. Mm. So sum it up. What's, what does this mean to you? It's like an emerging food and beverage thing. Well, the event itself is just kind of, I guess for me, it's sort of like two different... I mean, Mezcal's gotten a lot of... It's gone from this niche liquor in Mexico, even within Mexico, to this thing that has this so much interest in it internationally well at least in the united states it becomes such a huge market in the united states um but it's just kind of like you know new york's a great place to eat and it's to me it's like okay cool they're they're still interesting sort of like what i don't know where else you could there are certain other places you could do this but there aren't a lot of other places where you could just have a festival that's about mezcal and pozole you know, it's like we're going to have a soup festival. I, I'm, <laughs> am, I'm amazed that between Eric and Danny, we've got just easily 10 chefs who are of Mexican origin. Yeah. yeah. Top chefs in New York City. They're jumped to do pozole. And then other guys like Fat Radish was interested. Uh, the new Indigo Hotel mm-hmm. guy wants to make matzo, matzo ball well, pozole. I mean, good good chefs. Good chefs. You know, good, and, good yeah, I mean, I've had that Mesa Coyacan pozole like mm-hmm. many times, and it's so good. I'm looking forward to having it again. It's really at the, good. Uh, at the yeah, let's, let's let's wrap up with what's your favorite place to get pozole in New York City? <laughs> Chris, I mean, I'm just gonna, it's, you know, Danny's pop up. Yeah, La, La Pozoleria. Yeah. yeah, on That's Sullivan fun. Street West. Him and Fanny are both a little um, nuts about it. Yep, it's really amazing. Um, I mean, I used to live like. Next door to Mesacoyacan. So, <laughs> and where I, is that? Uh, it's off the Graham Stop on the L. So, so it's Williamsburg. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so and it's really Metropolitan good. Metropolitan and, and Kippy Kip, mentioned um, another place, but I don't know. He, we'll Achilles, have to ask him. he said Achilles Heel, the if they have it on the menu. But um, yeah, that's just the pozole I've had the most of because I literally live next door, so or used to. And Eric. Um, It's not like you have ten children. You, have, you can't name one of them. I have a couple. Just I have name one. It's better for I all love. of them. Uh, you know who's not doing our event, but it's really amazing. Um, and they—I don't know if they have it on the menu now, but I've always liked their pasole is uh, Rosie's on Second Avenue. Mm. Great yeah. place. Big yeah. shout out. Cook shop people. Cook shop people. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Great, yeah. Great restaurant family. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That's a great one. I, we could talk forever. What happens is we're always just getting warmed up. This, to me, was a very special show, having Leslie Vineyard back uh, back at Roberta's. Uh, two years from then to now. Eric, uh, working with you on this event has been a pleasure. Thank you. Um, I love seeing people that have restaurant experience in New York City and what you can do with it. And Chris, uh, getting to meet you um, on the air. You too. And, uh, and what I love about guys like Chris is that over the next two hours as we have our pizza dinner here at Roberta's, he's going to come up with like 20 more things to say, and uh, we're all going to learn from him. So, guys, thank you so much. Big shout-out to our team, producer Dylan Hoyer, uh, intern Kevin Barnum-Chang, engineer extraordinaire Matt Patterson. I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thanks for joining us here on the Heritage Radio Network. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Woo! Mezcal, baby! <laughs> Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. 
for our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.